was asked to talk about Latin America, its economic and social prospects, after the financial storm that hit everything. The talk is going to be divided, it was divided in four parts. The slides will stay with you actually, so if you want to take notes, take notes. If not, they're going to be in the website actually. So you decide. We're going to look at the stabilization growth performance, then the social outcomes, then policies, politics, and perceptions, and then whether we have now new challenges or the same old challenges in different um, presentations. Well, the remains of the day, post 2009. Let's start with the typical things that um, economists think think that it's important or that are important, inflation. <coughs> to be frank, with notable exceptions in South America, and you know them, basically Argentina and Venezuela, in general, inflation has been rather under control. I don't know where you can see the graphs. Yes. Um, this, the blue columns are the average for Latin America. And although they have been rising a little bit up here, it's essentially due to South America, basically to Argentina and to Venezuela. Venice, Argentina, the problem is not so much that inflationary pressures have increased, but the way of measuring them has been changed dramatically and to be more orthodox because they were measuring them in such a way that it was rather pathetic. It was, uh, their figures, no one could rely on them. So now they changed that way of measuring, so now it's reported as higher inflation, but to be frank, the inflation was higher before that. Look at uh, the red one, is, this must be Mexico, 4 3%. It's been ages, I mean, since Latin America was out of bounds in terms of inflation, since 1990, more or less. Inflation has been very low. So, after we had this huge and terrible financial storm that uh, stopped the world, one would expect, perhaps, that inflation would have soared in Latin America. There were extreme devaluations, devaluations of 50%, but inflation has been rather low, so no problem with inflation. Partly because fiscal deficits have been under control. The deficits are the green columns that you see here, that's the overall deficit. Latin America was uh, fortunate enough or prudent enough from 2003 to 2008 in the years of the commodity boom to have an austere fiscal policy or to have the blessing of a beautiful improvement in the terms of trade that the governments were able to capture, and they had huge fiscal, not huge, but interesting fiscal surpluses, which were very intelligently used in 2009, being the first case of counter-cyclical fiscal policy in Latin America in decades. It was very, very interesting that we finally got away from the orthodox mind of saying, oh, no, it had to be more austere. No, we decided to spend, and we did that. As a friend of uh, Costa Rica, that uh, he was the Minister of Finance, he said, Juan Carlos, you talk about counter-cyclical fiscal policy. You tell me later how I'm going to reverse this. Because right now I just gave a raise price in wages to a public officer, so you tell me how it's going, this is going to become counter-cyclical and not just expansionary all over. But anyway, then... Once again, as the economy recovered, the fiscal deficits have <coughs> been decreasing, and recently they are more or less at the same rate, or the same <coughs> proportion of GDP, as they used to be in 2009. If you want to uh, have a 
rod to measure this. The European Union once had, as a condition for its members, to have a three, at most a 3% fiscal deficit. So Latin America would be, bless you, when I say deficit, you sneeze. <laughs> that happens a lot. Are you an economist? <laughs> it happens. <laughs> well, we see. Um, the red line is total expenditure, so we spent more. And the revenues, as you can see, they are not soaring. They are rather very, very low. So that's a problem. But inflation is under control. Fiscal policy has been behaving very properly. Sometimes one says, well, we're looking at the flow side of fiscal policy. How about the stock side, debt? Are we really indebted? These are figures of public debt as a percentage of GDP. As any economist will tell you, you have to look at figures in relative terms, either relative to the population or relative to GDP. This was the 80s, 70s, whatever, the 70s and the 80s. Public debt in Latin America increased very, very much. Then we had the debt crisis. And really here you wouldn't be able to see 2009. In none of the figures that I showed you, well, in the previous one, yes, you, you could see 2009 as um, having an impact on the fiscal deficit. Here, well, after peaking a little bit, but it peaked before the crisis, before the 2009 crisis, and then it has went down, and now it has stabilized. They at, well, this one is the external one. This is, the, but if you combine them both, we are at levels of 30% of GDP, which the United States, uh, you name them, England, Italy, well, England, I don't know, Italy, Japan, the, the figures of 80%, 120%, etc. So this is, I mean, we look like Japanese here. Not Japan. Japan is also very, very bad. But sometimes people say, well, those are the average. If one looks at in detail, then we have a complete uh, shambles, as in many families. The family is quite nice, but when you look at some of the members of the family, like, mm -hmm. I, I have a political family. So Anyway, most of the countries in Latin America have and this. I'm sorry, the blue columns are 2014. The dots are 2014 years ago, 15 years ago. Well, today, basically only three countries have a ratio of debt to GDP that it's above 40%. The only one that would strike your attention would be Brazil, which is 62, but it's the same rate that it used to be 15 years ago. So one would say, was macroeconomic stabilization really put in, in disarray? due to the 2009 crisis. Well, if it was put, it was corrected very quickly. Because here, this figures, look, look at the, I mean, the amount of improvement in 15 years in many of these countries, right? So only Brazil would be like that. I'm not putting you the figures or showing you the figures for the Caribbean, because that's a completely different story. The Caribbean has figures of 90% of GDP. <laughs> Another interesting aspect of economic performance Usually, it's well, how are your foreign reserves, the amount of dollars that you have in the central bank? Are they strong enough? Well, look at that. They increased very much in the commodity boom years, and then they have stabilized as a ratio, as a proportion of GDP. So we are not weaker now after the 2009 crisis than we used to be. We, didn't, we have stopped increasing them so much, and one would actually say this is a good thing, right? That uh, uh, we're not amassing those amounts of foreign reserves and perhaps using them for something different. But are we weaker today than we used to be in, say, 2008? Well, not really. So, all those 
um, those facts point that Latin America is once again and still very proud of, of its macroeconomic stabilization characteristics, features. It has been very costly for the region to achieve that. And after 2009, one would have thought that, well, maybe this is going to be put at risk, especially since we had counter-cyclic of fiscal policy, but not a problem. But what about growth? Well, world's GDP and exports lost, as you know, the impetus post-crisis. The yellow column is 2003, 2007, before the end of the commodity boom. This is 2011, 2013, and this is 2014. This is Latin America. GDP was growing in those first five, six years at rates of nearly 5%. Then after the crisis, well, it went a little bit down, and in 2014, not to mention that. Well, very similar to what happened to its exports. Mm -hmm. This is the world, this is the United States, the Eurozone, very nice uh, countries like this one. But we're interested in this one. Look at China. China suffered also because the exports of China went from growing every year at 22%. Every year, nothing grows in life as, as this, perhaps cancer, but uh, nothing. Uh, they went from that to less than 6% per year, which, by the way, is much higher than Latin Americans' exports. But look at that. Chinese growth, although it's very much driven by exports, at least that's what the story says, the story goes, well, it went from 10% to 7%. Mm -hmm. Us, we went from 5% to 1%. So our growth is not particularly spectacular. Those were, this is the yearly picture. Well, you can see that the decline in 2009, well, it was a very rough storm, I mean, in that sense, a very severe adverse external shock. Our GDP declined in 4%. Our GDP per capita declined even more. But immediately boosted, saying, oh, how resilient is Latin America? Actually, there was not a single uh, financial collapse. Of any, no bank in Latin America collapsed when there was this financial crisis in the world. No bank collapsed in Latin America. But now the rate of growth has been declining and declining and declining. One would say, well, what happens is that the whole world lost pace, so this is, ex this is to be expected. But unfortunately, unfortunately, when we look at the GDP per capita vis-a-vis -vis the United States, Latin America has been widening that, that gap instead of closing. Why? Was it because of the exports? If we look at the figures, what this shows, it's in a very beautiful way because I like the colors, is this line is the evolution of GDP but it's decomposed in net exports, the yellow one, investment, the green one, and consumption. Obviously, consumption being such a big share of GDP would contribute quite a bit to that. But look what has happened after the recovery. Here, say half and half, a little bit more than half was contributed by consumption, and say 40% of the growth <coughs> was due to investment. But then look at the size of investments share now, smaller, 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 and now it's negative. Negative, it means that Latin America this year invested less than in the previous year. So if one wonders why is Latin America not growing, well, it would be very difficult to grow if you don't invest, if we don't invest. 
what could blame exports? You say, well, you know, the whole world collapsed. But if the figures, if you believe these figures, what they show us is that investment, a key component of growth in any growth theory that you want to believe in, except sunspots, is doing very, very poorly. Obviously consumption too, but consumption is more driven by income than it has an exogenous uh, life of its own, especially in Latin America that not a lot of credit drives consumption. Then the other interesting thing of this puzzle is that Usually we think of Latin America as being driven by exports as China. But if you look at the yellow part, mm -hmm, the yellow part here, it's positive, sure, but here it was negative, and it's been negative for years because we have a trade deficit. Uh, different from the difference between, say, Asia, China, they have a trade surplus. We have trade deficits. So imports may be great because you can buy food, oil, machinery, etc. But if you net them out of exports, the whole flow balance is not positive as such. Basically because Latin America, when we opened our markets, we learned how to export very dynamically, but we learned even better how to import. So one could blame imports, exports, but it's not really the case. It's much more that investment is going down, although the foreign component is important because this, you can't see here because the, the, these figures are drawn at constant prices. But if we put in the terms of trade, Latin America was very fortunate to have a huge improvement in the terms of trade. Without that improvement in the terms of trade, these figures would be even much higher. The deficits would be much higher. So growth was not very good, and guess what? Growth is going to be even worse this year. According to the IMF, the whole region may grow less than 1%. This is because our neighbors in the south are not behaving very properly. Brazil in recession, Argentina in recession, not to mention Venezuela. And here in Mexico, 3%, but last year, I mean last year, yesterday, the governor of the central bank said that, well, no, it's not going to be 3%, it's going to be 2.5%. So the trend that I showed you in the previous graph will keep on that way. So the financial storm, did it do something? Well, <coughs> yes and no. Basically what happened with the financial storm, if you look at it from the Latin American perspective, was that it ended the commodity boom. So then we had this beautiful piece of uh, performance in Mexico's history, or in Latin American history, I'm just talking about Mexico when we're growing at rates of 5% for six years. We hadn't done that in a, in a systematic way in 20, 25 years, 30 years or more. Every year growing at more than 4% in GDP per capita, more than 3%. This was extraordinary. Some countries like Brazil and some other countries in the South thought that this was going to be permanent. Mexico was not blessed by the commodity distribution in this occasion, so we didn't grow as much. But once the financial crisis started and the commodity boom ended, then Latin America, well, is back to the usual old self. So there was no big crisis as such, but just back to where we were. Is this important or not? Well, first of all, it depends as in economics. The terrible situation, the terrible impact that this has not so much in the GDP as such, is that now our, pro our progress on the social side is being interrupted severely. Latin America was able to reduce the rate of um, 
the poverty incidence in more than 20 points. Well, yes, yeah, 43 to and 10 points, and here more. So from here to here, 15 points in very in eight years, say. Mm -hmm. This is very impressive. It was done through growth. It was done through conditional cash transfers. It was done through uh, much more resources driven or directed to social policies. So it's very impressive. Look, finally, we were lower than we used to be in the 1980s. But now that growth has stopped, what has happened to poverty? Well, this <coughs> huge progress has stalled in the case of poverty as such, and it's starting to be reverted in the case of extreme poverty. And we're not talking about, uh, say, London, although I don't know the figures of London, we're talking about a country in which 50% of the population, well, as you can see, I was talking about, going to talk about vulnerability. We're talking about millions and millions of people. Mm -hmm. So here the number of people is going up again. The number of poor people is going up, and the number of people in extreme poverty is going up. This is the previous slide show you the averages, but let's go to the uh, individual cases. Well, Latin America is, I mean, the contrasts in Latin America are enormous. They go from Haiti to Cuba to Nicaragua, whatever. We have in Central America countries in which uh, vulnerability, 75% of the population is vulnerable. We can go into the definition of that, but anyway. Or we can go all the way to, what is this? It's Chile, Argentina, and Uruguay, where the figures are much lower. But in all cases, there was some reduction in vulnerability in the boom years, and now that reduction is put in severe question marks. That was poverty. What happened to inequality? Inequality, as Maxine was we were discussing before, there's been a lot of trumpeting about inequality that it has declined in Mexico and Latin America for the past 10 years. It's true, the Gini coefficients have declined. I don't know. Uh, how much is the decline relevant as such? Because now the figures of the Gini coefficient still stand at, say, 0 0.47, 0 0.50. It's 3%, yes, well, 6% of reduction in, in that Gini coefficient. And guess what? We're still the most unequal region in the world. So yes, there was some progress, but insufficient progress. The red dots, or the red squares, that's a Chinese expression, I suppose, the red square, and the yellow square, both of them. They, what they show is the difference between the Gini measured by market uh, prices and the Gini measured by disposable income. That means after taxes, after cash transfers, after education, etc. Mm -hmm. spending. So, guess what? This is Latin America, this is the OECD, and this is the European Union of 15, well, say 15 members of the European Union. Are the economies very different in the sense of producing more equal societies? Well, to be frank, 0 0.50, 0 0.47, and 0.49, it's not so different. This is just market outcomes. What makes them very different is the social commitment of the societies, sorry about the double expression, to equality as expressed in fiscal resources, taxes, etc., going to be to change the distribution of income. In Latin America, as I was telling you, well, the, the guys at the back, I suppose they can't really see a difference here, but look, 
in the OECD from 0.47 to 0.30, and the European Union equally from 0.49 to 0.30. In Latin America, well, Brazil, I, I would say that thanks to Lula's policies of let no one left, be left behind, they, they have moved in Argentina too, but in some other countries, if this is the other one, it's just Venezuela, by the way. But in many of the other countries, there's not such a change in the genies after fiscal policy. Change the income. Uh, the distribution of income. I'm so hot. How can fiscal policy be progressive? This is just pathetic. The yellow one is the average income tax rate paid by the 10th decile the richest decile. And this is the average income tax rate. Guess how much it is, the ones at the back, I suppose, since you cannot see the figure. Can you see the figures? Yeah. Oh, too bad. Well, this is 12%. Okay. So in Mexico, which is, relatively speaking, the one in which they are taxed more, the 10th decile, mm -hmm, on average, they are paying 11%. This is scandalous, to be frank. And obviously, well, in Mexico, it's where the Gini, thanks to the tax uh, policy, re decreases much more, which decreases in two points, 2%. But in other regions, I mean, say here is what? Paraguay. In Paraguay, they pay less than 2%. That's the effective tax rate. If you're rich there, and you're lucky enough to be able to have a good accountant, as all the, most of the people people in that decile have, although not they're very, very rich. They're very, very rich. Perhaps they don't even pay that. If, is it clear? Yes? The, the, the yellow squares are measured against this axis. They go from 12% to zero. Say mm -hmm. Uruguay, well, it's 8%. And the purple uh, columns they measure the impact that fiscal policy has on the Gini coefficient, a reduction of Gini coefficient. Well, at the most it's 2%, it's not that much, but in the case of Mexico, which would be nothing. No? Mm -hmm. As one millionaire in the United States said, it's pathetic if I pay more taxes than my secretary. Well, here they obviously pay much more taxes than, many less taxes than, than their secretary, as the American was. Third, so we had, um, Inequality is really bad. Poverty, we have stopped um, that progress. But now Latin America, it's not only the most unequal region in the world, but it's also the most violent region in the world. This is a quote from the Economist Intelligence Unit. With 25 murders per 100,000 relative to world average of six. And obviously, this can be traced and this can be reflected in the perceptions of the community or the societies on what's their most important concern. It used to be unemployment, unemployment in the sense of informality, it's not really unemployment as such, we have a lot of informal employment. And this was a percentage of the population that thought that unemployment was the most important concern. It was, the gap between them was 20 points. And it has, violence has been growing up, growing up, growing up. It climbed very much in 2010. Mm -hmm. And now it's 25%. The, the gap between them, it's the opposite gap now. 10% more people in Latin America think that the most important concern is violence. Crime, this was the average. This is, again, the, the figure. The, uh, the column that reflects the concern of um, crime and public uh, 
public security is the purple one. Mm -hmm. So then you can see in most of the countries it's the most important concern. And well, unlucky you, the ones that are sitting, I think, on the last three rows, four rows, or five rows, which actually very young people at the front, is that it's affecting very much the young people. Here the figure is showing, this is like actually the report that um, they produced six months ago. This is the result of a survey that they asked people between the ages of 16 to 29 to say whether they had been victims of a violent or a non-violent crime in the past 12 months. Well, Nicaragua, the safest in that sense if you're young, also if you're not so young, nearly 30% of the young people said that yes, they had been victims of either of these crimes. The violent is this one, 15%, the non-violent is that one. In El Salvador, which strikes me because I thought it was much more violent, and it's part of a certain triangle of violence there. Um, the figure is this one. And we go all the way to, what is this? Mexico. And I was telling Maxine I would like to have young people to visit UNAM and visit Mexico, and this is just, um, I'm sure this figure is not good. This, this figure is just the opposite. This, this must be Mexico, this is El Salvador, but anyway. It's, it's very worrying, right, when we have nearly here 50%, more than 50% of the young people that were surveyed saying that yes, they had been a victim of a violent or non-violent crime. Maybe breaking up with your boyfriend in Mexico is a violent crime, I don't know, or your girlfriend. So we have great, great, great results in stabilization, poor results in growth, and really frightening or at least, um, you know, high-raising figures in social in the social scene. So if we look back, well, what, what do we get from this part of the presentation? Well, what I see is that the financial storm affected Latin America really just by ending the commodity boom. Not it was with financial crisis as such. It was a crisis that was transmitted through trade, through remittances, through employment in the United States. Are we back to square number one? Well, not exactly, but we are still stable. We are still slow. We're very poor and we're very unequal. Not a very nice presentation card. There is need, in my view, for a new agenda for development. We have to put the reduction of inequality as a key priority, not as an ethical priority, but as an economic and political concern. Because on the economic side is that we have to revamp the external engine of growth. There's no way that Latin America will be able to go back to its export-led strategy because it's very difficult to export unless you are Chinese. I mean, now the developed world wants to export. They are putting a lot of barriers, etc. So it's not easy to export by any means. At least it's not very easy to export the same things that we were exporting with the commodity boom. So if you don't have that engine working very well, well, you have to have the other engine, which is the internal engine or the internal market. We have to restart that domestic market. The only way to have a strong domestic market, a robust domestic market, with a very different distribution of income. This distribution of income is not really going to work to have a very dynamic engine of growth. That means that we have to also change the transform the productive structure of Latin America in order to have much more value added and less based on natural resources. All this has to be done preserving economic stabilization which would need a reform. 
So if you agree with me that we have to find a new road for the same wagon, the problem is, are you going to pull the wagon with the same uh, animals or same oxen, whatever? It's not a pejorative, it's just a question. That they were pulled before? Well then, policies, perception and politics. Well, strange news. First of all is that after I show you everything on the economy that we're not growing, well, the perception in Latin America of the population that they see that the economy is in good shape, wow. Thanks to the commodity boom, it improved very much. We were very, very uh, not optimistic or not very happy with the situation of the economy. Only eight, between eight and 10% systematically thought that the economy was good or very good, in good or very good shape. Then with the commodity boom, they started to climb from 11, 18, 21. Nearly one in five Latin Americans thought that the economy was good or very good shape. Then it went a little bit down, and now in 2013, it went to 25%. So who knows what they are measuring? Because maybe they are measuring the reduction of the poverty, the increase in real wages in some cases, or maybe they are not economists and they are very happy with what's going on. I really don't know. But by country, Latin America, 25%. Mexico is not very happy, even there. This was the first year of Peña Nieto. It's 10%, Honduras 6%. Look at the happy, happy ones, Argentina, Argentina, and Chile, Venezuela, I don't know where's Venezuela. Where's Venezuela? Here's Venezuela. So, strange, but people, perception of the state of the economy is okay. Actually, Latin America is also the happiest continent in the world. Are we satisfied with democracy? Because when we say, well, maybe we're not satisfied with democracy, with these results, because the economic results were okay, more or less, in traditional terms, not in growth. The social results are not very good. Progress has stopped, and it started to be reverted. Maybe this would be a questioning, start to, be, this would start to question democracy. This is Latino barometers, by the way. This is the, the answer to the question that, okay, we do recognize that democracy can have some problems, but it, is it still the best? way of running the show. Well, can you see any impact of the 2009 crisis or nothing or the end of the commodity boom? No, Latin Americans will still think it went from 64, 70, so now it's up nearly up to eight. Well, it's between 64 and 79 going up. We are very happy in the sense of we're satisfied or we're very committed to the view that democracy is the best way of running these democracies. Our governments. Remember that we, this region was very violent. I mean, it was run by dictators and people in Guatemala. Two hundred fifty thousand people were killed. You know, things like that. So Latin Americans were very, very committed to democracy. Whatever we mean by that, not very sure. But Mexico again. Now we're with El Salvador. We're not very happy in that sense. We're not very that committed, but we're still most of the population. So now we are Latin Americans pleased with the state of the economy. We are committed to democracy, but finally we see some change in perceptions of the rate of approval of governments. That has changed after the 2009 crisis, or after the end of the commodity boom. It was going up, it was stabilized, and now it has been going up, in some cases dramatically. This, these figures are for 2013. If I, could, I didn't have the figures for 2014, but say in the case of Chile, Madame uh, Bachelet is in the lowest percentage of law. We have a colleague here that she could explain to us. So the rate of approval has collapsed. It's not very, very good in the region. So we're not approving our governments. 
Perhaps we are doing so because we think that they are very corrupt. This is the, um, the question was that, do you think that in the last two years what has happened to corruption? Has increased a lot, a little, about the same, decreased and decreased a lot. Decreased a lot is less than 3%, so no one really thinks that corruption has decreased a lot. But increased in Argentina 58, 37, in Chile 40, Colombia 43, Paraguay 50, in Mexico 52. So maybe that's one of the reasons why corruption, I mean, why governments are not seen very well in spite that the economy is more or less seen as in good shape. So we're not trusting the government as such. What's the perception of Latin Americans and key institutions of key institutions of democracy? This are political parties, parliament, and the military. The this is the proportion of people that think that these institutions are very corrupt or corrupt. Well, for the political parties, the lowest figure is in Uruguay, which is 50%, and then we jump to 75, 80, whatever, 80, 85 in El Salvador, 81 in Peru, and Mexico, 91, and I think it's low. <coughs> but anyway, what about the parliament? Mm -hmm. What do Latin Americans think? Are they corrupt? Well, the lowest figure is again Uruguay, and then it jumps to 66 and 70%. The military have a nicer a strategy of PR, or maybe they are just less <coughs> corrupt as such, because the figures are between the, uh, around the 30s and the 50s. But then is the media, or the, the church is not seen as corrupt, you name it, business, funny enough, it's the other side of corruption, but they are not seen as corrupt. So it's, it's very strange, you know, the corrupt ones are the government. Oh, all governments. So there's an urgent need, in my view, for a new agenda of development. But who's going to uh, do that? New agenda with key democratic institutions and many. Because we have this. You just look at the paper today if you want. Look at Brazil, look at Chile, look at Argentina, look at Guatemala, look at Colombia. Uh, we could go not really on and on, but quite a number of countries in which legitimacy of the government is put in severe question. But we have, if you agree with me, that we need a new agenda of development, well, someone has to propose that agenda of development, has to push for it, it's a big political change. Putting inequality in the center of policy is easily said, but not very frequently done. So some of them, as you were saying, I'm sorry. In this political scenario, who, as I was telling you, may be able to do this? How likely is this strategy to succeed? Because we have a very weak, volatile economic, global economy. I didn't mention the volatility of the global economy. If we look at every day, uh, Madame Yellen in the Federal Reserve, whether she's going to raise or not the interest rates, that puts, I mean, central bankers like very frightened because right now the interest rates are very low. Even though they're very low, the credit is not really flowing to investment as, as such in Latin America. But if the interest rate in the United States changes its trend and it starts to uh, move up, then a lot of, of uh, foreign capital that has been flowing into the region will reverse immediately in massive quantities and very rapidly. Actually, it has already started to do so. So we had problems with the balance of payments, as I was mentioning about the trade deficit. If you add to those problems capital flow, then a real crisis may appear, and that, that storm of 2009 may look like child's play in that sense. So 
how, how, if the strategy, first of all, let's identify the strategy. If you agree with my three points, let's say that that's the strategy. That's the strategy. But who is going to push for that strategy? And even if they push for that strategy, if political parties are so badly seen as corrupt, will they be able to push it effectively? Will parliaments be able to put it also effectively in the population? Because 75%, 80% think they are corrupt. Mm, unlikely. And then again, the volatile economic, global economy. Some countries in Latin America still think that export-led growth should be the strategy and we should push for it again. And I don't really think so. But what will happen socially and politically if nothing happens economically? And I think that's a very good point to end and start the questions and answers period because that was the first question. So this is a question that I pose to you. And thank you very much. This is me. And that's it.